Hey, it's John Reed of Diginomica. I just finished day two of Everett McKay's UX Design Edge workshop. What do you formally call it? UX Design Essentials. UX Design Essentials in your company's UX Design Edge. Correct. And you have a three-day workshop that you give, which is one of the main things that you do. Right. Uh, so actually, to, to, uh, to clarify it, for, so the way I see it is what I call, what we just did now is what I call a class. So this is a public class that we just did. Right. Workshops, for me, are generally are for on site right. for team-based training. Right, okay. And in terms of why you did this, you started out as a developer, and then over time, I guess, realized the importance of UX. How did that go? My career path has not been exactly carefully planned. It's pretty much all accidental, but I started my career as a software developer, and what I did is early on kind of recognize that the key to success to software was to have a great user experience. Uh, however, at that time, I'm old enough where, uh, you know, way back when, you know, nobody really knew how to do a great UI, so I tr tried to, to learn how to do that pretty much on my own as a software developer, just recognizing how important that was. So that's what got me in the UI uh, area in the first place, and kind of the the sequence of steps that I went through. Hopefully, I'll make this uh, not too not too long. But uh, the interesting thing is, I went to a developer conference, C++ developer conference in Boston, around uh, 1998, and I went to a talk on UI design. And I noticed that it wasn't really that good of a talk. Like half the audience yeah. laughed, the other half was falling asleep. And so I was thinking, well, I can do a better job of better explaining job, this yeah. to people. So I actually ended up on my way back home thinking, well, maybe I ought to write a book on this. So I ended up writing a book that was published by Microsoft Press called Developing User Experiences for Microsoft Windows. So one thing led to another, and next thing you know, I'm a senior program manager at Microsoft. And so my responsibility there was to be what they call a UIPM. My feature was, in effect, the user experience for Windows server security. So the interesting step that happened next was a friend of mine, Scott Burkham, uh, used to teach a class at Microsoft, an internal training class called UI Design Basics. He decided to move on and do something else, so he asked for volunteers to take over that training. And uh, for some reason I can't entirely explain, I volunteered to do that yeah. class. It wasn't part of my job, but it was just something I did on the side. And so I found that I was pretty good at it. I felt like I enjoyed it. And uh, also I have kind of a unique perspective. Coming to design from the developer point of view gives me a different perspective than people who come to UX design from the design point of view. And so the things I like to emphasize, I think are a little bit more practical for more of a developer, more of a technical audience. Right. So anyway, just to finish the story, when I left Microsoft thinking about my post-Microsoft career, I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I enjoy it, so I thought I'd give it a go. So I've been doing this for five years now. Cool. Now, why do you think UX matters, and are you noticing an increased demand for UX know-how these days? Yeah, I think that my timing uh, for starting my company in, in 2010 was actually uh, ideal, again, kind of by accident, but it's not like I planned it that way. But the interesting thing is I am noticing a significant increase in the interest in UX design, uh, mostly by technical teams. And I think, really, it kind of boils down to the fact that the world has changed in many ways. You know, whenever I do a workshop in the, in the Silicon Valley, I kind of get the impression that the Silicon Valley was focused, you know, it just came from technology. It's like, we've got these problems, we've got technical solutions to these problems. And if our users have to have training and read big giant documents, users' manuals, in order to learn how to use our product, that's fine. So that's the old way of thinking. That's the old world. But I think we live in a new world now. You know, we're walking around with great user experiences in our pockets. We know what a great user experience is. And I think we have the expectation of being able to use a product without training. 
And I, I certainly know that, that uh, teams, or specifically companies, don't want to have to pay for training for their employees to get productive. We have this expectation that we can figure out how to use these products on our own without the documentation, without the training. So I think that's starting to show up in companies. They're recognizing that uh, it really is important for their UIs to be more intuitive, more self-explanatory, mm. to avoid the training and whatnot and make it a more enjoyable user experience. Also, I think we're living in a world where there's kind of like a surplus of technology. There's tons of technology out there. If you really want to make an impression in the market, you want your product to be the one that's easy to use. Right. Right. The idea of, you know, you know I'm thinking about, you know, when, when I got started, you know, the, the world was such that you could expect, like, if you wanted to learn WordPerfect, to actually take the WordPerfect manual home and read it for several nights to just to try to get going. Imagine trying to sell a word processor today that required hours and hours of training. You couldn't possibly do it. Right. right? You would get nowhere. And I think that people are trying to are starting to recognize that that's true for not only mainstream software, but everyday software, a line of business software, you know, filling out expense reports. Nobody's going to be trained to figure out how to use a tool like that. We expect people to get to it and immediately understand how to use it. Yeah. So in this three-day class you teach, I, I was able to sit in on most of, of the second day here. There's a few things that stood out to me, so let me run them by you. Um, one of them was this notion of moving beyond opinions about UX into a more objective discussion. Is that something that stands out to you as well? Well, again, given my, given my developer background, you know, honestly, as a developer, I don't want to have long personal discussions about art. And I think right. that, uh, honestly, I think there's a little bit too much art, a little bit too much subjectivity in UI design. And a lot of what I try to do in my training is look at various tools and techniques that we can use to eliminate a lot of the art and subjectivity. So rather than having a discussion over personal opinion about you know, what we feel about you know, the subjective attributes, the artistic attributes of a UI, what I really try to focus on is more objective principles that we can use. And one of them that I think is very important is this idea that a user interface is basically a form of human communication. So if we focus on how effectively a UI communicates to our target users who are human trying to get a task done. So if we can explain a task in a very comprehensible, understandable way, that actually eliminates a lot of the subjectivity. It's not a question of what I like versus what you like. The question is which one communicates better, right? So let's say we're trying to do something that might appear to be artistic, like choosing an icon, right? Traditionally, that might be an artistic type of question. But my approach is, well, which icon communicates its purpose better? That's really what it's all there for, is to communicate the purpose of the command or the, the feature or whatever it is that that thing is, is representing. So the issue isn't which one looks better or which one feels more artistic. The question is, which one communicates better? Right. And if, if it just so happens that the one that communicates better is not attractive, we can fix that. That's not a problem. But the real question is, which one communicates better? And that takes a lot of the subjectivity out of it because we can, we can figure that out and we can agree on that whereas if we were to just to discover or right, sorry discuss the visual attributes you know we can talk past each other all day long and never agree on anything right another key point was this whole notion of intuitive design because pretty much an enterprise UX talk everyone talks about intuitive design but what does it really mean yeah and you've been able to define some very focused criteria tell us about that well right so one interesting thing I've done is whenever anybody tells me uh, or talks about intuitive UI, if I have the opportunity to, I'll, I'll ask them, well, what do you, exactly do you mean by intuitive UI? And the big surprise is that, quite frankly, nobody really knows what they're talking about. So we throw this word out as if it were the most
most meaningful thing in the world. But the reality is, we don't really understand what it is. In fact, one thing that's interesting is the dictionary definition of intuitive is instinctive. And quite frankly, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. It's not about instinct at all. That's not really useful. Uh, so uh, recognizing this, a uh, very important part of what I try to do in my class is to teach people what exactly it means to be intuitive. And the way I do this, first of all, I give a very specific definition, which is that a UI is intuitive if our target users can understand uh, how it works without the use of, of uh, documentation, experimentation, memorization, uh, training, or any sort of assistance. Right. In other words, it's immediately self-explanatory. So if we have to do any of those things, we need help, we need to experiment around, that's by definition a sign that it's not intuitive. Yep. But that doesn't tell us how to make a UI intuitive. So what I then do is explore the specific attributes that we need in order to make a UI intuitive. And I frame it in terms of the interaction lifecycle. What, what are the steps we go through as a user in order to interact with something? And basically the idea is if all those elements are there, oh, we're fine. If not, we've got a problem. So I won't go through them all, but just to take the first one, the first element that we need is discoverability, right? So we need it to be able, once we have a, a goal in mind, we want to get something done, we need to be able to discover the feature we need in order to achieve that goal. We need to be able to find it in the context in which we need it. And if we can't find it, guess what? It's not intuitive. Yeah. When it, I'm going to write about those characteristics in the article I do on this, but another one that stood out was forgiveness. I love that concept right. of, of, of making it really easy for users to explore and make mistakes and, and not get punished for it. Right. You know, yeah. Not, uh, I like that one too. work or whatever it is. And the funny yeah. thing about that, so my, my, my claim is one of the uh, important attributes is forgiveness. Users make small mistakes all the time. What exactly happens if a user does make a mistake? Right. And the big surprise is when you start looking for this, uh, most software, quite frankly, makes you start completely over. Yeah. So uh, I had an experience with Lufthansa the other day. So uh, I, was, I have a Lufthansa account, it, which is like a 14-digit number. And uh, they were asking me for my PIN. And I thought I knew my PIN, right? So I type in the 14-digit number. I type in the PIN. Guess what? I was wrong. Guess what they did? They cleared not just the PIN. They cleared the 14-digit number. Oh. So I thought, OK, it's not that. I think I know what it is now. So I tried it again. So I had to type the 14-digit number again, entered another PIN. Guess what? It was wrong. So they cleared it again. So I thought, well, OK, I'm going to have to click the link to get my PIN emailed to me. So I click on that link. Guess what? I have to enter the 14-digit number again and my email address. Then they send me the PIN. Guess what? <laughs> Once I get the email, I have yep. to go back to the website, enter the 14-digit number right. again, and then finally my actual PIN. So I had to enter this 14-digit thing four times. Right. They cleared it every single time. Now, if I enter a correct uh, if I enter a correct account number, is it too much to ask for them to remember it? Especially if it's 14 digits. I have what I call my, my, yeah, yeah. my law of large input, which is the more difficult it is to enter something, the more likely it is we're going to have to enter it more than once. Right. And that was certainly the case here. A big giant number entering it over and over right. and over again. It would be such a small thing to remember it from instance to instance, right. and they don't do it. And the funny thing is when you look for this pattern, you see it all over the place. Yeah. Every time the user makes a small mistake, we really punish them quite harsh, yeah. harshly by making them start over. It's almost, a, it's almost a hostile experience for the user, which gets me to my next point, which really stood out to me today, which is you, you said, and I completely agree, I never thought of it quite this way, all software has a personality, whether right. you design for it or not your software has a very specific personality that users relate to. Right. And a lot of times that's extremely unpleasant. And so during your presentation, you had a ton of these like just horrifying error messages where people don't realize that companies could design these error screens in a much more different way 
that would have essentially a different personality. Right. Definitely. So the personality of a product really shows through in the error messages, I think, more than any place else. So, uh, you know, if you have a, an app that you think is a very social, very pleasant, very fun app, if your goal is to make it fun, and then you have these harsh, brutal error messages uh, that, that really punish the user, very often for very small problems. They make a small mistake, and we have these horrible, harsh error messages. It really does kind of reveal a very, uh, a very poor personality. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Uh, you know, coming from the developer side, though, you know, just traditionally we have a a history of just extremely harsh language in our errors, right? So we right. use terms like catastrophic, abort, right. uh, you know, terminate, kill. And, and life or death icons. Yeah. You had some like an emergency icons. Like right. Nuclear meltdown if you, right, you know. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, and this, by the way, was for a very minor thing, which is that the user didn't provide a bit of information. It's not a big deal at all, but the error message looks like, you know, we're on full down, uh, you know, nuclear lockdown or something like that. It's just uh, a horrible uh, visual experience as well as, as the, the text as well. And the thing I want to suggest here, though, is that you know one interesting thing I've noticed is we don't really design uh, the error handling or the forgiveness in. Uh, in fact, I've worked with some teams where uh, they do what they call happy path analysis, right? So you go down the happy path and everything's absolutely wonderful. But when I'm working with them, one thing I ask is, okay, what if I don't go down the happy path? What if I make a small mistake here? What happens? What if I make a small mistake there? What happens? And the big surprise is what happens is misery. You know, we don't design this in, and the experience when you make a small mistake is just awful. It's just awful, and we don't, don't really think about it because we're so focused. I call this happy path myopia because we're so focused right. on the happy path, we give no thought into veering from the happy path. It's just not designed or not designed well. And you, and you did have some examples. There are some companies that are starting to catch on to this and, and, and have messages about missing information and much more informal, friendly language. I think you might have had a MailChimp example. There's another company used a couple of times. So companies are starting to get this a little bit. Some of them. Right. Well, we talked about delight a little bit yeah. towards the end. And the interesting thing is, rather than being this, uh, the error message experience as being some sort of harsh, negative experience, they actually kind of present it in a very positive way. So, uh, you know, a few companies that do that. Wufu is a very good example. I think right. also, uh, well, you mentioned uh, MailChimp, but also WordPress. You know, yeah. uh, you know, gosh darn it, something's gone wrong with our servers. It's probably right. Matt's fault. Well, that's Matt, an error yeah, message, yeah. but it doesn't feel like an error message. You know, it it has a it has a, a sense of humor, but without being uh, off-putting in any way. You know, of course, it depends on the domain that we're dealing with, right? So if we had like medical software. You know, we wouldn't want to say, gosh darn it, the patient died. It's probably Matt's fault. That would be totally inappropriate. So we can do this in a situation where it's a relatively casual relationship. If we're dealing with personal safety or life and death or people's money, of course, we, we don't want to have quite the same uh, latitude in terms of uh, what we do in terms of air handling. We want to be more serious there. Well, there's uh, so many juicy topics we could dig into. I'll try to hit more of them in the write-up. Um, but before we go, um, you do a lot of workshops with companies. What kinds of challenges are they facing, and how how can they how can they move ahead with some of these UX principles? Because I've seen a lot of companies that are realizing that we just need more UX um, talent and understanding in house, not just a couple of experts we can source, but across the development team and such. Is that what you're finding? And what kinds of questions are you getting? Well, as being as someone being in the training business, of course, naturally, I like to think that that certainly training teams in UX design goes a long, long way, and I certainly agree with that. Um, 
One thing I'm seeing, though, is that even though there's a lot of companies that are really trying to get serious about UI design, the reality is that their staffs are relatively sparse. You know, so you might have a, a team of, let's say, 100 developers or software professionals, and you might have a usability team of like five guys. And it's very difficult for a team of five UX professionals to scale to 100 people. It's just really hard to do. So. A lot of my best customers are recognizing this and they're having me train their, their, their teams throughout the world, or often their global companies. And kind of the goal behind this, first of all, if we have developers understanding what it is we're trying to do, I think developers are more likely to embrace the idea of a great user experience if they understand why it's important and how to do it in a very objective way as opposed to opposing it. You know, we tend to, as developers, we tend to oppose things we don't understand, so that certainly helps. But also, getting people trained also helps our resources scale better, right? So if, if everybody on the team knows how to write a good error message, for example, we don't have to deal with that. We, it's not realistic to have a designer or, right. or, or, a, or, or even a writer design every single error message, but if we have a good set of guidelines and we have people on board with what it is we're trying to do, we can scale that a whole lot more efficiently, a whole lot more effectively. And so that's kind of the thing that I see my customers wanting to do, is just get their, their teams to really kind of adopt the more design thinking in their process, uh, embrace it rather than opposing it, and know enough so that we can scale our, our very limited, scarce resources a whole lot more efficiently. Well, I think that's going to keep you busy and on a lot of airplanes in the future. So good luck with that. Well, thank you very much. The great thing yeah. about my business is I'm really focusing on teams that don't have sufficient design talent. That turns out to be pretty much everybody. So yeah. business is pretty good right now. Yeah. Sounds good. We'll look forward to checking up on you in the future. Thanks All for right. your time. Thanks a lot, John.